want, you can open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 27, 1 Samuel 27, and we're continuing along in this series on the life of David, and I'm calling it the making of a leader. It is obviously David's time from shepherd boy to when he becomes installed as king. Have you ever felt in your spiritual life that sometimes you go two steps forward and then take one step back? that happen? What's happened to me? Uh, there's been seasons in my life where obviously I was walking with the Lord and, and I felt connected with him. And then there's other seasons where I'm wondering, where is God right now? What's he doing? Or I've been really faithful to him. And then seasons where I'm just struggling with victory in my spiritual life. Two steps forward, one step back. There's a chart that I want you to see. Maybe you've seen this chart before. This is the process of spiritual maturity. And I think a lot of times when we start walking with the Lord, we just kind of expect a, a faith walk that's just onward and upward. You know, we're just going to keep moving along in Christ. But the typical faith walk looks more like this. You have seasons where you're excelling and then seasons of decline. You'll notice that the trend line, of course, is onward and upward. But why is that? Why do we go through a faith walk like that? And I think it's because for God to grow you, in order for God to grow you, he has to stretch your faith. And what does it mean to stretch something? Well, you're taking something to the limits just before breaking point. How has God stretched your faith? Well, Maybe he's called you to do something new with him, like tell someone about Jesus for the first time, or to give to his work, or maybe he's bought you through a trial that stretches your faith. And here's the thing about stretching, it's uncomfortable. So once the pressure, the tension lets off, what happens to the rubber band? Well, it snaps back, it recoils. Sometimes we, we've been taken to the limit and then it feels like two steps forward because we rise to the occasion and then pressure's off one step back. And we're going to see that this morning in the life of David. Think about what David's been through thus far. He's been on the run from Saul. God gave him an opportunity to extend mercy to Saul. David does that the first time in the cave. Then he gives him a second opportunity in the camp. We wonder if that iron law of fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, is going to take effect. But no, David forgives Saul again. He shows us how to forgive a repeat offender. But now we realize that that must have been a very stretching moment for David. Because as we pick up the story this morning, he goes through a significant recoil, a backwards step. So let's read it. First Samuel 27. The text says, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. 
And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told David that uh, Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day, Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now, David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerizites, the Malachites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jeremielites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring the news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. The, last two, the first two verses of 28 as well. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So let's go back to the beginning of the story and make our way through it. Notice in the first part that David is shaken because of Saul's persistent, relentless pursuit. Now, we all have a breaking point. You have it, I have it. There tends to be that, that final straw that breaks the camel's back. And for David, this is happening in verse 1. Now listen to what the text says. It says that David spoke in his heart. He's talking to himself. Do you ever talk to yourself? You do. I know you talk to yourself. We all talk to ourselves. And, and sometimes we say good things to ourselves, and other times we catastrophize the situation. So David's thoughts have become dark and despondent and fearful. I don't know about you, but often when my mind goes to places like this, it's late at night. I'm tossing and turning in bed. I can't get back to sleep. 
Why is that? Well, there's just something about the night. I remember one particular season where there was just something heavy on my heart and I, I couldn't get away from it. I would wake up in the middle of the night or I wouldn't drift off to sleep and I would just keep going back to that situation, ruminating upon it, projecting about how it might turn out. Oftentimes, when you're experiencing a sleepless night, it's because someone you care about is in danger or they're struggling. Now, in David's situation, the text tells us that he is responsible for 600 men. Let's do the math real quick. You add the, the families into the picture, and there are some 1,500 to 2,000 people where David feels responsible for their lives. And he turns to fearful thoughts. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Now that word perish could be translated as swept away, and it's actually the same verb that David uses back in chapter 26 when he talks about God dealing with Saul or disposing of Saul. So you see the recoil here, the verb of faith in chapter 26 is now in chapter 27 become a verb of dread. Dale Ralph Davis says, all of us propagandize our souls, that is, we constantly talk to ourselves, and it turns out that what you say to yourself and what you say regularly to yourself at the very center of your being, that directs your steps. So then what do I do when my thoughts become dark, when they become fearful? Well, the Bible always brings you back to the same point. It says you have to direct your thoughts back to the Lord and start thinking about him. I wish that David had remembered what he had written in Psalm 57 when his thoughts went in this direction in 1 Samuel 27. Now in Psalm 57, David is writing about after the experience of fleeing from the cave from Saul. And again, I think his thoughts would turn fearful often at night. Because in Psalm 57, he says, My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. That's vivid imagery, isn't it? You're feeling in that much turmoil, it's as if you're standing in the presence of a pack of lions. And then he goes on to say, and he says, they set a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. He's discouraged. But then his thoughts turn to the Lord, and he calls forth the dawn. He says, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I love what he's doing here. Psalm chapter 30, verse 5 tells us this. Joy comes with the morning. So when your thoughts are dark at night, sometimes the best thing you can do is pray in faith remembering that God is going to rise the sun yet again. And in the morning, things tend to get better, don't they? Cheerier, if you will. You see, what we're coming to find out in the text this morning is that there is a big problem with fear. 
Fear causes us to do things. Fear causes us to react. In the realm of psychology, they talk about the fear response, and the fear response is fight, flight, or what? Freeze. All of those responses are not good to fear, but they're natural responses. We all, we all deal with those things. And here in the text, we see David respond with flight. Look at verses one and two again. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him. And now what we're seeing is David entering into a dark phase of his life. This is a phase of David's life that is almost a year and a half long. Now, we tend to think of David in pretty glowing terms, don't we? I mean, yeah, he has that, you know, instance with Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah, but he's pretty much got a spotless record. Well, I got to tell you, church, that's not David's life. David's life is a lot like your life and my life. It's, it's complicated. Yes, he's a man after God's own heart, but yes, David also had seasons where he would turn from God, where he would step backward. When did he start going wrong? Well, I want to suggest this to you this morning. Moral failures can always be traced back much earlier than the moment of the failure. You got that? It can always be traced back earlier. In fact, this makes me think about a concept in safety and security uh, we've been looking a little more intently into this as elders in light of recent events. It's sad that you need to think like this, and, but this is the world we live in. It's not always a safe world that we live in. And in that realm of safety and security, they talk about reading the colors. Have you heard of that term before, reading the colors? Uh, think about a stoplight. It's a way of analyzing behavior and the risk that a person poses when they come into a dynamic like this or a group situation elsewhere. Now, now green means that a person poses no risk. And that's the kind of behavior that you want to see in a social situation. There's no threat, no problem. Yellow is marginal behavior. I haven't crossed the line, but it's not quite right. Like, imagine someone walking into a building with like a big old survival knife strapped to their hip. You start looking and you think, hmm, something's not right about that. Red, of course, means the person has become an active threat. They've crossed the line. Now, when should you intervene? Yes. Yellow, not red. Because if you're intervening at red, they've already crossed the line, right? You want to kind of stop it before it happens. So it has to be yellow. And that's, I want to suggest the same thing is true when it comes to moral decision-making. Moral failures begin well before we've crossed the line. For David, his moral failure begins all the way back when he's 
talking to himself and not involving God in the situation. In fact, let me ask you a question. As you look at this entire chapter, do you see any mention of the name of God? Well, I see a lot of action, but no mention of God. I, I don't see any prophets consulting. David before would be like, bring me the aphod. He doesn't ask for the aphod. Nothing like that. Here's what I do read, though. David thought, David decided, David did. As you look at his actions, too, you think, oh, this is a little odd. He's a little off in his thinking. The text tells us that he went over. Now, that's a significant verb right there. He's leaving the promised land, and he went over to Achish of Gath. You ask, well, isn't that the Achish, or is that the same Achish from chapter 21, where David was so fearful of this guy that he faked insanity and drooled all over his beard so he could escape? Why, yes, that's that Akish. And you think, well, is it the Gath where that, that big nine-foot-tall champion named Goliath that David killed came from? Yes, that Gath. And Proverbs 14, 12 gives us a little insight into this. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man. And in modern terms, we might call that cold logic or pragmatism. And what is pragmatism? The expression goes like this. It's a philosophy. Well, as long as it works. As long as it works. So if you really squint your eyes and, and, and focus hard on David's logic here, you can kind of back your way into seeing what he's saying right now. He, he's thinking to himself, I'm not safe in the promised land. And this guy, Kish, who I was afraid of before, well, he knows now that I'm an enemy with Saul. And after all, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So I'm just going to go over here and I'm going to be safe. You know, the dangerous thing about pragmatism is you can act and you can be incredibly successful without involving God at all. Look at what happens when David crosses over. Verse 4, first of all, tells us that Saul stops chasing him. And then he asks for a town. In verse 6, it tells us that Akish gives him Ziklag. Now, Ziklag is significant because it's actually a part of the original territory that God said he was going to give to Israel. So if you're looking into this situation, you think, wow, David crosses over and he gets another piece of the inheritance and it stayed in the kings for all that time. And then you look at verses seven and eight and it says he went up and he made raids and he's bringing back sheep and oxen and donkeys and camels and garments. And we look at things like that today and we say, the numbers don't lie. The numbers don't lie. I mean, this is working out for this guy. He must be doing something right. Pragmatism is dangerous because the feedback loops are all wrong. You can't evaluate spiritual success with worldly measures. I promise you, the Bible never does that. Why? 
because you can look successful without God. And do you think the Bible ever directs you to do anything without God? Never. But think about it. Can you climb the career ladder without God? What do you think? Could you marry the person of your dreams without God? Young people, could you choose your career? Could you choose your school? Could you choose your next steps of life without God? Well, let's get really spiritual and sanctimonious on this now. Could a pastor grow a church without God? Oh, boy. These feedback loops are all wrong. And, you know, the biblical successful feedback loops, they seem so foreign to us. I mean, what does the Bible say leads to spiritual success? Well, Jesus said spiritual success looks like your willingness to die to your wants, your plans, your own desires, so that he has supremacy and he can lead your life. Paul says that success looks like your willingness to look foolish to other people because you worship and serve a crucified Lord, and all the world looks at that and says, who does such a thing like that? That's foolish. Well, we do. You see, the measures are all different. According to the Bible, the numbers can lie. Who do you think is going to be greatest in heaven? You know, I think I'm not going to know their name, When someone tells me where they were from, I'm going to say, I've never heard of that place before. If I were to look at their resume, I would be thoroughly unimpressed. It's all upside down. The measures are all wrong. Proverbs 14, 12 is the nail in the coffin of pragmatism because it says this, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It turns out that David's pragmatism leads him on the road of death. He enters into a process of compromise for almost a year and a half of his life. And that's because of this. Pragmatism naturally slopes downward toward compromise. Look at the ways that David compromises. He lies a lot, doesn't he, in this chapter? (laughs) A lot. Now, here's the thing about leadership gifts. Strengths can also bring with them a dark side, okay? David is an incredibly gifted leader. When you look at David's leadership, I mean, the guy is winsome. People just like David. He's the kind of guy that you get around David and you say, you know, there's really something about that guy. I just... I trust him, and he's really strategic, but then it can take a dark shape. In 1 Samuel 23, 22, David, Saul says, was also known as being very cunning. So use your gift, right? Either to bring glory to God and to bless others, or you start using those same strengths to benefit yourself. That's called expedience. Well, David would do that. As we look at where this is heading and the next step, it gets darker. To maintain the ruse, listen to what the Bible says that David does. David would go and raid places and would leave neither man nor woman 
alive. I mean, did that catch you when we were reading that together? That doesn't sound good. He's going into territories and slaughtering people. Why? Well, this is what he says. This is his own explanation. Lest they should tell about us and say David has done, he's killing people so that he won't get found out. This is outside of the norm. When people would raid in these days, and I'm not saying that that was the right thing to do, they would leave the people alive. It's like a stick-up. Give me everything you got. No one gets hurt. But David's wiping people out. And then it appears to get even worse. In chapter 28, Kish is talking about marching his army against Israel, and he says to David, understand that you and your men are going to go out into my army. How do you think that does for the image of the future king of Israel if he's found on the side of the lines of the sworn bitter enemies of Israel marching against his own people? Whew. Godless decision-making. Lying, slaughtering people, conspiring with the bitter enemies of God. I mean, if we're reading the colors right now, he has crossed way over into the red. Now, I know how you guys are. You want me to put a nice bow on this, wrap this all up. But the Bible doesn't do that. We have to actually wait till next week. So you got to come back and I'll put the bow on the top of the package for you then. Instead of doing that, I want to rewind the tape and go back before David's behavior turned yellow. What should he have done to stay green with God? Well, we got a glimpse of that in Psalm 57, but the, Psal the Psalter actually presents to us a theology of how we stay committed and connected to the Lord through all of our lives. The, there's a phrase that's repeated some 37 times throughout the Psalter. If you go back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 12, it's the first time we see this phrase. The phrase is, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, the key word there, of course, is refuge. And what does it mean to take refuge? Well, I tend to think of refuge as, you know, a nice trip to the Caribbean, sitting out in the sun, floating on a raft, getting away from all my burdens and cares and concerns. But let me assure you, that's not refuge, that's oasis. Refuge is more like a bomb shelter. It's the place of ultimate security. And this is the central question with your walk with God. It's going to be repeated to you over and over and over again in your life as you experience things in your life. Where are you finding refuge? What's your bomb shelter? Is it your 401k? Is it an alcoholic beverage at the end of every night because you just can't calm your nerves. So now you're actually starting to form a habit to cope with life. Is it escapism into social media, 
YouTube, movies on Netflix? Is it your career? Is it your reputation? Is it your political affiliation? Over and over and over again, we're going to be asked, where is your refuge? David's refuge in this story is Gath. But Psalm 118 tells us that that's not wise. It says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Because those false refuges will promise you the moon and they'll never deliver. Never. So here's what I'm driving at. We all need a better refugeology. Because fearful things happen in this life, and, and fearful things will send even the best of us into fight, flight, or freeze mode. Just look at David's life. So where are you going to run? What's going to be your refuge? What does it look like to take refuge in the Lord? Well, I'm the type of person when I'm asking a question of like that, I want to see the best example of it. And of course, the best example of a good refugeology is Jesus, the Son of God. There's many psalms that are called messianic psalms. They're psalms that were written and they projected forward to the coming Messiah. And Psalm 91 is one of those. And in Psalm 91, we learn that the Messiah would have a very strong refugeology. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. Now, is that the Bible promising that Jesus would experience no pain in his life, that he would experience zero hardship in his life? Well, it turns out that in the wilderness, Satan attempted to offer Jesus that spin on a theology of refuge. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says that the, the, the enemy took him on the, the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him that if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and now he's quoting Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus unequivocally rejected that theology. Listen, church, the pain-free promise is as much a false refugeology as all of those false refuges are. Biblical refuge doesn't mean that I get a pain-free life. It doesn't mean that I get to force God's hand and that, I must, that God must enact all of my wants and all of my desires. No, biblical refuge is God's promise to protect you through the chaos, not to remove the chaos. Think about the bomb shelter. You're in the bomb shelter even as the bombs are falling down on you. So David finds God to be his refuge while running in the wilderness. Now again, I wish he would have remembered this theology in 1 Samuel 27. 
In the, the Psalms later, there are psalmists who are writing out of uh, exile, captivity. They were removed from their own land, and they found God to be a refuge in that place. Jesus finds God to be a refuge while he is tempted for 40 days in the wilderness with no food and no water. Later, the Son of God would find God to be his refuge on the cross. When the bombs are falling, Spiritual leaders know where to find refuge. What are the characteristics of the one who finds refuge in the Lord? Let me ask you to do something. Bow your head, and I want to read these verses over you. You see, Psalm 91 gives us the characteristics of Jesus verses 14 through 16, it says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You see, those who treat God as a refuge hold fast in love, know his name, call to him. Father, this morning, we acknowledge and even repent of the reality that sometimes Fearful thoughts come into our world and instead of treating you as our refuge and our shelter, when those fearful thoughts come, Lord, we turn to our own devices, our own plans. And Proverbs 14.12 says that, that that sort of reactionary decision-making, the end of that path is death. But to follow you, to trust you, to rely upon you as our refuge, that is the space and the path of life. I want to pray, Lord, over each one here, knowing that we all carry our own set of burdens, our own set of trials, our own circumstances. There are new faith developments happening each Sunday here at church, Lord, new ways that you're stretching us. And Lord, we're sorry when we recoil. We want to walk with you faithfully, Lord, and we want to do things your way for your purposes, for your glory. Keep working on us, Lord. You say you will in your word, and we believe it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.